Wow, what an absolute privilege to be introduced uh, to an opportunity like this by your very own daughter. And what a privilege it is to be here uh, with you students at Southwest Christian High School. As you know, um, we have entrusted the high school education of our three, only three grandchildren, Jake Pettit, Sophie Pettit and Robbie Pettit to this fine institution. And I just want to share with you how very proud we are of not only their academic preparation, but their commitment to the service of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so it's a delight to be here uh, with you. Um, I'm Colonel McAleese, as, they, as this thing um, indicates, and as it turns out, not something that I've particularly planned, but um, the Lord kind of had in mind that we would become a military family. My father uh, served in the Army Air Corps during World War II. Um, I served, as Annabeth said, during the Vietnam and Cold War era. Uh, Mr. Pettit, Tom Pettit, there on the left, uh, served during the Desert Storm era. Jake Pettit, in the center, is currently serving. And we don't know how God will unfold his career, but we're confident that he has a great plan for Jake. So, as Annabeth said, our purpose today is to celebrate veterans and what they've done for us. Um, and I had no, no better way to do that than to let our, um, my favorite commander-in-chief uh, speak a few words to you on that. A few moments ago, I placed a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier. And as I stepped back and stood during the moment of silence that followed, I said a small prayer. And it occurred to me that each of my predecessors has had a similar moment and I wondered if our prayers weren't very much the same if not identical. We celebrate Veterans Day on the anniversary of the armistice that ended World War I. The armistice that began on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. And I wonder in fact if all Americans' prayers aren't the same as those I mentioned a moment ago for all we can ever do for our heroes is remember them and remember what they did and memories are transmitted through words. We see these soldiers in our mind as old and wise. We see them as something like the founding fathers, grave and gray-haired. But most of them were boys when they died and they gave up two lives, the one they were living and the one they would have lived. When they died, they gave up their chance to be husbands and fathers and grandfathers. They gave up their chance to be revered old men. They gave up everything for our country, for us. And all we can do is remember. There's always someone who is remembering for us. No matter what time of year it is or what time of day, there are always people who come to this cemetery, leave a flag or a flower or a little rock on a headstone. And they stop and bow their heads and communicate what they wished to communicate. I think sometimes of General Matthew Ridgway, who the night before D-Day tossed sleepless on his cot 
and talked to the Lord and listened for the promise that God made to Joshua. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. We are surrounded today by the dead of our wars. We owe them a debt we can never repay. All we can do is remember them and what they did and why they had to be brave for us. All we can do is try to see that other young men never have to join them. Today as never before, we must pledge to remember the things that will continue the peace. Today as never before, we must pray for God's help in broadening and deepening the peace we enjoy. Let us pray for freedom and justice and a more stable world. And let us make a compact today with the dead. A promise in the words for which General Ridgway listened, I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Excuse me. What I'd like to do today is share with you some of my experiences of serving in the armed forces with the purpose of really making two points. One, um, the emphasize some of the points that President Reagan made about why we owe so much um, to our veterans. But then the second point is to emphasize what he also said about God's faithfulness, particularly in my life, um, as I went through all of those experiences. Um, I didn't start out intending to have a military career. I grew up in Alexandria, Virginia, outside Washington, D.C., and was finishing my high school education there when my dad came home um, during my the spring of my junior year and announced that family we've been transferred from the garden spot of northern virginia to some godforsaken place called minnesota and i remember thinking at the time god why do you hate me so much that you would interrupt the finest year of my life to make me go to some strange land um but um, I, I would like to share that as a result of that, two very important things happened. The first is that my first day in class at Edina High School, I sat down in class next to this little person named Julie Gilman. That's the same person who's been my wife now for 55 years. So it's obvious that if that were gonna happen, God had to get me from Virginia to Minnesota to meet her. The second important thing is that if I had stayed in Virginia, I never would have gone to the military academy because all the appointments were sewn up. Since my father could not afford to send me to, a high class to get a high-class college education, the opportunity to go to West Point seemed very, very important. So I got to Minnesota. I applied for an appointment. I got it, and sure enough, um, God gave that to me and enabled me then to go to the United States Military Academy where I spent four years getting an undergraduate degree. I have to share with all of you that I don't think I enjoyed a single day of that experience, but I'm tremendously thankful for the preparation that it has made in my life. So 
eventually I persisted. I got through um, my four years there. First thing I did was come back here to Minnesota and marry that little Edina girl. And you can see why. Wow, boy, she's gorgeous. Still is today, too, I'm going to say. Um, my um, thought was at that point, after going to airborne school, falling out of airplanes and ranger school, just being miserable, um, I thought that I would join a unit preparing to go to Vietnam because the Vietnam War was really heating up during that time. Instead, God had a different plan for me, and my first assignment was here in Germany. Um, I put this slide up, remind you of your history following World War II, the Germany was split into two parts. On the east side was the Soviet sector, on the west side, uh, run predominantly by the Germans, but administered by Britain, France, and the United States. So the eastern side was characterized by communism and slavery, the western side by democracy and freedom. And people faced with those two choices voted with their feet, and they chose to leave that eastern side and come to the west. In order to stop that population, the Soviets built a fence all the way down from the North Sea down to Austria to keep their people in. Well, this is what that border looked like, at least where I was, and our job was to patrol that border and watch for any Soviet buildup over there that might indicate an attack on Western Europe. Um, if that happened, our job, and again, here you see the lovely Mrs. McAleese standing in front of our primary combat power, which were our tanks. We were to deploy our equipment along that border and be the first ones to engage that Soviet invasion. We were, I like, we all like to think, to become a speed bump on their dash to the Atlantic Ocean. And our life expectancy would have been very, very small um, had that happened. But it didn't happen, and what I thought would be a three-year um, uh, tour in Germany turned out to be six months. And I was brought, like so many of us, brought back to the States to join a unit training to go to Vietnam. This was a different unit than I'd experienced. Remember those tanks? That were our primary combat power. Um, the unit I came back to was an air cavalry squadron where we were trying to figure out what to do with this new war machine called the helicopter, how to use those in combat. This is a very important picture I'd like to describe a little bit. We're sitting in the bleachers watching a firepower demonstration that we're going to put on for the cadets from West Point. And this is the day before their full demonstration. We're doing a drive run, and we've got the wives and families of our unit here in the bleachers. Now, what we were doing was watching first uh, our scout helicopters, the lead one, the little one, and then our gunships come flying across. And then we were going to bring two troop-carrying helicopters, and they were going to circle around and come in and land in front of the stands and deploy the troops out of that. So on our dress rehearsal, as, we're, as those two helicopters are coming in, they mesh rotor blades, drop from the sky, burst into flame, and kill 11 soldiers at that time. In total, my unit, the 17th Air Calf, we killed, suffered the loss 
of 22 soldiers before we ever left the United States to go fight. I, the point I wanted to make out of that was that military service is inherently risky and dangerous. That's big, heavy, dangerous equipment that we operate. The missions that we do are demanding, stressful, and again, inherently dangerous. So service in the military is not for the faint-hearted. Um, there are plenty of opportunities for um, for death and injury uh, in that service. Well, anyway, we finally deployed from uh, to Vietnam, and this was our first home away from home. You can see that Hilton would probably not rate this five stars. Um, makes another point. Most of the places that we serve, particularly overseas, are less than wonderful environments. Uh, this was hot, dirty, rainy, and just plain miserable uh, existence. Um, <clears throat> this was my first unit that I command. I call it my rat patrol. You can see we were not very heavily armored. Primarily our job was to defend that base camp at night and then during the day do convoy security um, and other uh, missions. Didn't really do much fighting with this unit. But I left them after about two months and joined the 11th Armored Cavalry, which was already established in Vietnam. My first tour of duty was working with our local Vietnamese uh, allies. Our job uh, was to uh, train them, equip them, and support them so that eventually they would be able to take over the defense of their country and protect it themselves without U.S. involvement. So it was a very critical mission. I'd like to point out, although I was on a rotating tour, I was going to be there for a year, <clears throat> gentlemen like this young captain that I'm with here, uh, this was where they lived. This was their home. They weren't going anywhere else. And so to give them an opportunity for a decent life was a very important mission to us. <clears throat> well, after uh, doing this for a little while, I was given command of an armored cavalry troop. And we were mounted in these monsters um, and it represented a tremendous amount of firepower. Heavy machine gun on the front, two light machine guns uh, in the rear and a grenadier. I had 33 of these things divided into three platoons of 10 each um, and plus three more that mounted heavy mortars that went with me everywhere and provided indirect fire. So this was a very formidable unit. This is pretty much the way I saw the war, sitting in that cupola looking over that 50 caliber. We did two primary things. What I'm showing here is a mission where <clears throat> we supported the local Vietnamese as they tried to root out the Viet Cong guerrillas. We would come in and cordon off a village. The, the Vietnamese would sweep through there and look for people who didn't belong there, enemies who were there. The other major um, mission that we had was fighting the North Vietnamese army, which was a very capable army that was invading South Vietnam. Um, and while I would indicate that these vehicles provided us a lot of protection, they were not invulnerable. Here's what happened when one of these things got hit by a rocket-propelled grenade. You can see it tended to do quite a bit of destruction. And, um, and do considerable damage to the crew inside there as well. If that happened to you, your next experience was 
uh, with the phenomenal medical backup that we had in Vietnam, and probably you ended up getting put on a helicopter and sent back. I point that out because that's how I left Vietnam. As Annabeth said, I did uh, get wounded over there and medevac back to um, the States. Um, and then I went into a period of recovery. And so those of you who don't believe I actually got shot, that's a picture of my leg, my right leg. Um, as I was recuperating, that bullet went in the front, out the back, and into my thigh. Um, I, th there's one other important point of, uh, about this. It's not just to show me off. Um, <clears throat> I was in the hospital in Japan with a young man who had hit about, been hit about the same spot in the leg, but the bullet that hit him hit on the front of his leg and, and shattered his leg bone. That young fellow had a, um, a stump. Uh, he had his leg amputated. Um, so I say that simply to say that God really was watching out for me during all of that time, and I really felt his presence. I want to point out one other God incidence in, in this. In order to get that cavalry troop in Vietnam, I had to extend my tour by six months. Well, sweet Mrs. McAleese was living in Miami, Florida, having a gay old time and living with a roommate that we had met earlier in the Army who was in the process of divorcing her husband in Vietnam to marry a guy that she had met. Well, there's no doubt in my mind, given the state of our marriage at that point, that if I'd been away an additional six months, I too would have ended up divorced. So God, in his magnificent, as we tell the story, God shot me to save my marriage because it brought me home about the normal time I would have come home, put us back together, and our marriage persisted. Point of all of that, God has a marvelous plan for your lives as he did for mine, I'm convinced. And even through the hard times, like my getting transferred in my senior year in high school or getting shot in a combat operation, things that seem at the time to be God, why are you doing this? God has a purpose in all of that, and it's purpose for your welfare. I, I point that out because as we struggle with this COVID stuff and everything that you're having to endure um, during this time in your lives, please have that faith that God is control. He's using this for a purpose of his own to bless you in some way. I can't figure it out but I, I know in my heart that he does. Well, okay, many of us came home from Vietnam then with either physical wounds like I'm showing here or um, uh, spiritual and emotional wounds from the very active uh, combat. And the reception, if you know anything about that time in the life of our countries, the 60s and 70s, our country had divided right down the middle between those who supported the government's prosecution of the war and those who violently protested against our military involvement in Vietnam. As a result of that, many of my fellow soldiers, when they came back, were cursed, spit on, and and um, uh, derided for being baby killers uh, and other uh, atrocities in, in combat. Um, 
I, I, this slide is a, a picture taken at the Purgatory Park uh, Memorial down there in EP. If you haven't seen that, I really encourage you to go look at that sometime. The point of this slide makes the observation from George Washington that the willingness of future generations, new people to enlist and serve their country is directly proportional to the treatment of veterans um, that are in the country today. Uh, so while we got a very hostile uh, reception on our return during those Vietnam years, I, I'm really proud to say that America's treatment of her veterans has really greatly improved and our very taking of our time to do what we're doing here to honor our veterans is so very, very important. Well, I didn't experience too much um, uh, adverse reception because I stayed in the military and continued to serve in combat units. Um, one of the units I was in in Fort Hood, Texas, uh, for a training mission, they picked our entire battalion up, all the soldiers, and sent us to Germany for six months, leaving our wives and families at home to fend for themselves point I want to make of that is that military service is extraordinarily impactful on military families, on marriages, and um, on families in general. So whether it's the combat deployments that take us away, or if it's the training, peacetime training deployments that we have to go on, again, tremendous stress placed on our families. Okay, in the normal course of events then, um, I got uh, an opportunity to go to West Point as an instructor. That's common for the faculty at the military academy. They take officers out of the army, send them for two years to get a master's degree, bring them to West Point to teach for three years, and then they go back to the army. But I loved teaching in the first place, and raising young Mrs. Pettit in such a wholesome environment as we had at West Point that I decided I'd really like to stay there and do that. So there's this small permanent faculty at West Point, not very large and very competitive to get into, but I decided that's what I wanted to do. A position came open while I was there, and I competed for that. Now, I competed with my best friend, Christian, strong Christian, best friend, and he was far more qualified for that job than I was. And so naturally he got it. And here's where God stepped in. He created another permanent position that did not exist when we were applying for that one and gave that position to me. Um, and not anything I did, but allowed us to remain then at West Point for the next 16 years and the remainder of my military service. Got to raise Annabeth in that supportive family environment. She was there in 1990 where she met some goofy cadet Thomas Pettit. Um, and then we were subsequently able to hold her wedding to that Lieutenant Pettit in the cadet chapel there at West Point. So a great many positive things in our family came out of that gift from God allowing us to be there.
Probably the most impactful thing was that our tour there allowed us to be a part of a parachurch organization called Officer Christian Fellowship, where we got to disciple and mentor cadets who were coming through the Corps of Cadets and to be a positive impact for Jesus Christ in their lives. Most of the young students that are in this uh, particular slide are still our friends today and still people that we interact with. One final incidence of God operating in our life um, was that when I reached 30 years service and faced mandatory retirement, I told God, look God, I'll do anything that you want me to do, but oh, by the way, if you want to know what I would like to do, I would like to teach in a Christian college, continue teaching and do it in a Christian environment. Well, because of my military preparation, the PhD and all that, and because of God's direct intervention, two things happened that opened up a slot at Point Loma Nazarene University, allowed me to join the business department there and to again teach for another 20 years. Wonderful, wonderful end of, uh, of my professional career. So, in, uh, finally, to wrap up then, why it is that we owe a debt of thanks to those who have served, I'd like to show this video. So, that's um, a, um, a summary of the debt that we owe our veterans and why we owe them a thanks on this time that we honor them. Anytime uh, that I have a chance to present to a group such as you all and talk about military service, and because of, I guess, you know, the teacher in me, I feel I can't quit without making some point in all of this. So here's my point. The question is, how should we as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, how should we react to military service? What should we think about that? What should we uh, desire to participate in fighting and killing and all that other stuff? So anytime I face that question, of course, I turn to the Bible and um, the first uh, hero that comes out to me in the Old Testament is King David. And King David uh, twice uh, um, testified to be a man after God's own heart. But also, David had these other characteristics. He was involved in the deaths of um, uh, many, many uh, people that his armies fought against. And even David attributed his ability to be effective at that to God's preparation for him to do that. Of course, there are a great, whoops, stop. There are a great many, got hit the right button. Um, other uh, warriors in the Old Testament, each of whom God used in a very unique way to accomplish his purposes for the nation of Israel. When we bring that forward to New Testament times, we see there are really only about two mentions of military people in the Gospels, and both of those are Roman centurions, company commanders in the Roman army. And both of those are spoken of quite highly. The first is that um, centurion at Capernaum uh, that did, Jesus marvels at his faith in Jesus' ability to do what Jesus can do. And the second centurion is the one at Joppa that encourages Peter to understand 
God's message that he wants Peter to take the gospel, not just to the Jewish nation, but international to the Gentiles and everything else. So they receive, um, you know, commendatory um, uh, approval from uh, the times that occur there in the New Testament. On the other side of that, my friends, um, oh, excuse me, two more things. First, bringing that, rolling that forward to today, certainly many people uh, instrumental in the protection of this country have also been warriors and have also been um, tremendously devout individuals dedicated uh, really deeply to God as this favorite picture of George, of mine, uh, of George Washington <clears throat> uh, praying there for his soldiers. Um, again, um, there's another part of that when you get into Romans 13 and Paul talks about our responsibility as Christians to support our governments because governments are appointed by God for our protection. And particularly I wanna point out in here that statement there it says, for it does not, it being the government, does not bear the sword for no reason, but rather to protect us. Um, so those are things that seem to support our service uh, in uh, military organizations. On the other side of that though, we've got to pay attention to Jesus teaching uh, of us. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, first he says we're not to oppose evil, but we are rather to turn the other cheek. And then he follows that with saying that we're to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. So the issue then is how do we resolve those two, um, that different set of guidance that we get um, out of God's word? Well, my Whoops, did it again. Um, my thoughts on this as I've wrestled with that and thought about it over my military career is that I have come to the conclusion that we have both a private life and a public life. In our private life where our devotion to Jesus causes us to obey the great commandment to love God, to love our neighbors, and as Paul says to be at peace with all men, all persons, um, as it is within our power. On the other hand, we do have a public role, and that's the role that I think of, of King David and George Washington and all those others that were on the slide. And in that role, uh, we have an obligation to support legitimate government. I emphasize that legitimate part. Um, but the duly appointed authorities, we are called to obey. And then the question is that center part, given the fact that the um, government does wield the sword, does manage violence, and control all of that through the military and police forces, it seems to me that we are called in our public role to support that kind of activity. But we were always to do that in light of our private love for the Lord Jesus, and that is to manage force responsibly um, so that we care about those that we serve, we care about those that we're there to protect. Um, I, and I guess my closing thought then on this subject would be the following. If the, sword does, if the state does wield the sword, whose hand do you want on the sword? 
Do you want somebody who cares nothing about people and is only self-focused? Would you rather have a Christian wielding that sword who understands that all people are made in God's image and that he is there to protect them and to honor them and to serve them to the best of his ability and when necessary to use that sword to protect the lives of others? Okay, and so again, wrapping up my experience then with the military, I felt in this case called by the Lord um, to serve in the forces that guard this country. And I hope that as you all are going through your high school education, getting ready to end that and thinking where you might go from here, that many of you might hear God's call and say service is an area that God is leading me to, and that with a clean heart, a full heart, you would in, uh, pursue those kind of opportunities. Okay, that's it, time to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, our attention turns to those veterans who have served us in the past, those who have given their lives uh, in defense of this country, those who are currently serving, like my grandson, Jake. Lord, we lift them up to you. We thank you for all that they have done for us. We pray your continued presence with those who are serving. We pray that they might be an instrument of your will to accomplish your purposes here for our country. Lord, um, we also, I also thank you uh, for these young men and women that you've called to this time of preparation, that um, you would give them a clear sense of your presence in their lives, a clear knowledge that you have a, a purpose for their lives and that you want to execute that. Give them the wisdom and the, and the fortitude to follow your leading and to serve you wherever they may go. We ask all this in Christ's very precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening in on our Encounter podcast. You can find previous Encounter recordings and who will be coming in future weeks on our Southwest Christian High School webpage, www.swchs.org. Click on Student Life and Encounter. Again, thank you for joining us, and until next time, keep your eyes fixed, not on speakers, teachers, or institutions, but on Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith.